0: Most cannabis enthusiasts live somewhere in the murky area between science and bro science. We all aspire to have accurate information, but because of prohibition, we don't have a lot of good answers to many important cannabis medicine questions yet. And so for many, it's easier for them to give you their best guess rather than say they don't know. And so it goes with so many cannabis educators as well. It's not hard to get a speaking gig on cannabis medicine at a cannabis convention without any actual scientific or medical training. I've seen a multitude of speakers and panelists who were simply parroting what they heard from someone else or something they read in an unsourced internet post. Too many medical cannabis speakers vaguely explain the endocannabinoid system, and when you ask follow-up questions, reply with additional vagueness and platitudes, but not very much detail or scientific rigor. These are the charlatans and carpetbaggers that degrade our community as a whole. However, there's a new breed of cannabis educator ready to replace these folks. They are well-educated, well-spoken enough, confident enough, and full of heart and the right intentions. I'm seeing more and more of a new generation who are able to study cannabis medicine or the cannabis plant in school. They combine the highest ideals of our community with the knowledge that comes from rigorous study. I am exceptionally enthused by this new generation of cannabis leaders and look forward to working with them and someday handing off the baton to them as they take over. I encourage you to do the same. If there is someone that you follow online that has the depth and accuracy of information that you respect, take a moment and tell somebody about them, or make a post to your social media about them. Intentionally help their message rise above the noise of charlatans so that more of your friends and family have the opportunity to learn from someone offering real science and real actionable information. Shining light on good cannabis people is an act of cannabis activism. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter, so go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Lose. Today, my guest is Miyabi Shields, Ph.D., Dr. Shields is co-founder of Real Isolates, which, ironically, focuses on the importance of secondary plant components and synergistic cannabis blends, so essentially whole plant medicine. Miyabi received their Ph.D. in pharmaceutical sciences, focusing on the biochemistry of the endocannabinoid system from Northeastern University in 2018. Miyabi has authored or co-authored six peer-reviewed publications and presently has a patent under review for a novel fungus and plant extraction method. Miyabi also has a substantial list of honors and awards, including a 2016 International Cannabinoid Research Society pre-doctoral research award. Their TikTok channel, at MiyabiPhD, has 130,000 followers and is where I first met Miyabi. Today, we're going to focus on the detailed mechanics of the endocannabinoid system and further understand how cannabis medicine works. Welcome to the show, Miyabi. Thanks for having me. So cannabinoids interact with cannabinoid receptors in the endocannabinoid system. And they do that by binding with those receptors. That's how they take action. That's how they do what they do. But what is actually going on at a chemical level when a cannabinoid pings a receptor? Most cannabis educators just kind of generally explain agonist and antagonist and leave it at that. But... My audience really wants to understand what's going on at that granular level. So if you would, please explain what's going on at that point of the receptor and maybe include why some cannabinoids act upon some receptors and not others.
1: All right. So we're going to dive into structural biochemistry then, but... A protein, so receptors are proteins, um, and not protein like nutritional protein that we eat in our diet, but a protein um, molecularly just means a long string of amino acids. So basically the receptor is this giant ribbon of, of amino acids, which are it's a really long molecule, and it forms these different shapes. And receptors like the GPCR is a which is a type of receptor, which is what the cannabinoid receptors are, happen to be these shapes that have like seven like helixes or cylinders. And they're they're arranged in such a way that they're floating around in our membranes. And what actually happens when a molecule binds to a receptor is that it changes the shape very, very slightly. And that change in shape, which we call a change in conformation is what activates or inactivates the receptor. So this is like, it's, it's this amazing process where when THC binds to the CB1 receptor, when it changes the shape of the receptor by binding it, um, all of a sudden this new area of the receptor becomes available. Because if you're imagining these seven cylinders all kind of floating around, All of a sudden when thc binds it arranges the seven cylinders you know such that this other patch is available that starts the signaling process it's called a signaling cascade that happens afterwards Um, and in terms of why certain molecules have different actions or or can bind to different receptors um, that that comes down to three uh, different things and the first one is shape so you know everyone's heard square peg round hole Um, the same thing with receptors and with molecules, there is a binding pocket for most molecules, which is on the receptor. It's like a piece of the receptor that's shaped such that it can accept these molecules. Uh, In the CB1 receptor, THC binds, you know, somewhere towards the top. Um, And it binds every single time in the same exact way because it fits into this shape like a square peg. And another molecule that doesn't fit into that pocket will not bind to that receptor. Uh, So that's the first thing. And the second thing is charges, like positive and negative charges. So in chemistry, there are partial positive and negative charges, and just like magnets, they attract and repel one another. So inside, in addition to the binding pocket, having a very specific shape, there also are very specific charges, almost like a magnet that interact with the charges on THC or CBD um, that then help to bind it even closer. Um, And then the third thing is what's called van der Waals interactions, but it's really um, a metaphor for that. I just think of it like fatty Velcro um, because <laughs> molecules that are very fatty, um, like the cannabinoids, which are you know extremely fatty molecules, they can have these interactions with each other where they, they kind of stick to other fatty molecules um and that's the third thing that kind of binds these molecules to the receptors and you have to have a matchup between the shape the charges and the fatty velcro uh, for a molecule to have what's called affinity to a receptor which just means that the molecule will bind to the receptor Um, and then the next step further will be what happens to the receptor when that molecule binds so what you were mentioning about like the different ways in which A molecule can interact with a receptor Um, thc is often called a partial agonist for a cb1 receptor that means that it turns it on but only partially and this is because when thc binds it changes the shape to turn the receptor on there are other molecules that can also bind to the receptor, but they change the shape in a different way that leave the receptor off. Um, These are called inverse agonists. And then there are molecules that bind and don't change the shape at all. And these are called neutral antagonists. So there's, and that's just, you know, those are the three main ones. There's actually a a large array of of other interactions that that molecules have, but I'll I'll stop there.
0: I like that idea that you've got these, these, uh, these spirals and and the cannabinoid approaches the receptor and those excite somehow and then reveal this this lock that the cannabinoid may or may not have the appropriate key for um, does the does the receptor get? Uh, are sig- excited to and to reveal that lock to every cannabinoid that goes by that seems like that would use a lot of energy or do, or does the receptor know when it's being approached by the cannabinoid if it's the right one that it should change shape for
1: so this is actually what's the <coughs> most like what's the most fascinating thing to me about biochemistry is that nothing is conscious and nothing, these receptors and the enzymes, the proteins, all the signaling molecules like the endocannabinoids, phytocannabinoids like THC, CBD, um, serotonin, serotonin receptors, all of these, um, none of them are consciously aware of things approaching or or, are not approaching. Um, Everything is just happening based on a chemical equilibrium and everything actually in our whole entire bodies pretty much occurs due to forces of enthalpy, which is energy and entropy, which is like a measurement of disorder and chaos. And right, everything in the universe tends towards disorder and chaos. And between those two, you know, factors, it's, it's just like, whether or not something is statistically likely to so occur. So the receptor is sitting there. The receptor is in the the membrane and it's empty and it's, you could say that it's waiting for a molecule, but really it's just kind of floating around. Um, And then when you have THC molecules floating around um, at a certain concentration, there will be enough THC molecules present that it will be you know, energetically favorable for it to bind to the receptor. Um, and so the, what I mentioned earlier about the shape, the charges and the fatty Velcro, you know, hydrophobic interactions, those three things determine how energetically favorable it is. So the affinity determines how little or how much you need of a certain drug to cause the receptor to what you call to to get excited. Um, because it's all, it's all based on whether or not it's it's favorable and these things are just kind of floating around like waiting to interact and whether or not they interact depends entirely upon how closely they are shaped to one another and and attract one another
0: so so the it's it's a non-conscious thing that is looking to continually bring the energies into balance and so it sounds like to a certain degree how the the likelihood of the receptor and the cannabinoid to interact is a level of subtlety that that might just be based on luck. I mean not to be I mean it sounds I, it, like you need takes a little bit of luck they're going to put them next to each other but we don't even necessarily know if it that if it's going to if they're going to interact until they do.
1: Right. So it but, but rather than luck it's it's based on chemical affinity or properties, So it's it's not luck because the receptor has a shape that happens to fit the, the molecule very well. So if you think about it as like, okay, if you and I, if you and I are like boats float, we're in two boats floating in the ocean. And then there's like, we're bumping into each other whether or not the boats will stick to one another depends on how strong the magnets and velcro we have on the outside of the the boats are to one another right mm-hmm. um so it's, it is exactly like you're saying like at, in luck in a certain sense people like the the molecules are just kind of floating around but whether or not it chooses to interact and it's not necessarily a choice it depends upon how strongly they're attracted to one another um by these these chemical forces so it's It's predetermined in in some sense um, where the more of a molecule you add to the solution, the more of them that are present, the higher the the statistical chance or the likelihood um, and it is exactly as you described although i I wouldn't say that it's luck i I would say it's it's chemically and energetically favorable at the, at that point. Um,
0: I regretted using luck as soon as no, I no. said it. I'm like I'm talking to a hard scientist. No, I no, cannot no. use luck.
1: <laughs> <And> <laughs> I, mean, I I get, I get what you're saying though. It, it is, it's not conscious though, which is, it is something amazing to think about. That you know, if I go to snap my fingers, like you know, snap and When I snap my fingers, the chemical reactions that occur that allow me to snap those fingers at a certain point there, there is a conscious thought that goes into beginning that cascade, but all of the molecular interactions that occur are actually just energetically favorable.
0: (laughs) So so far, I'm glad that when we, you know, we go to snap, the probabilities are that it happens, you know, pretty much without fail.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And all of those probabilities are predetermined by our signaling systems and receptors. And I mean, that's just how amazing it's miraculous to me. I mean, it's, it's amazing that we can think about snapping our fingers and that you know for most of us and most of the time if you know how to snap your fingers it'll just happen
0: so let's uh, let's pull out a levels of magnitude a little bit so how many of these cannabinoid receptors do we have in our body because you know it's it's a lot of people you know when I when I was brought into cannabis medicine I was taught that um, the number of receptors you have are not related to body weight. Um, it has everything to do with your particular ability and likelihood to grow more receptors. But more and more in dosing, I'm seeing from people giving dosing recommendations based on body weight, which as far as I'm aware, doesn't match the science as I learned it five, six years ago. So what is the state of the art now about how many of these receptors we have, and if there's any relationship to body mass?
1: So I don't I can't say this for absolute fact, but I do not think that the number of receptors are related to your your body mass like at all. Um, And they they change all the time. That's another thing that we're not like well aware of and that we're still figuring out is that there are a lot of um, interactions with our environment and with our diet and yes, using cannabis that change the density, what's called a receptor density. Uh, for CB one receptors, and you know, and also something you pointed out is how many how many receptors do we have? Normally, we talk a lot about CB one. Sometimes we'll talk about the CB two receptor, which is generally uh, attributed to the immune system, but we rarely talk about the other receptors beyond that. Which you know, there's there's multiples, and there's also receptors that we originally classified in different systems that interact with the endocannabinoid system, and you know, this is going to get a little bit into the weeds here in terms of like separating out different receptor types for for specific purposes, but I personally don't believe that the systems are separated a- at all. Uh, the endocannabinoid system is integrally linked to the serotonin system, the dopamine system, I mean, all pretty, the GABA system. There's actually an endocannabinoid that is dopamine plus arachidonyl acid. Wow. It's, it's there's a there's a serotonin um, arachidonyl amine to ethanolamine as well. I mean there's those are like rare endocannabinoids and we we don't research them as much as we've researched or we we haven't yet researched them as much as we've researched um, the other ones. But it it also is fascinating because the CB1 receptors. And the CB2 receptors have been shown to, to dimerize, which means they bind to receptors in, in other systems. Like for the dopamine, it'd be the D2 receptor. Um, and and it's been shown that if they dimerize and if there's more than one type of receptor, that it will have a different effect. And so we're still in the, even though receptor pharmacology has, there's been a lot of work and a lot of amazing progress. I still think we're in the early You know, in the early stages of understanding these receptors, how they interact with each other, um, and then to, to go further into your question about like dosing and, and knowing how much is good for someone. I really don't think that there's any way to judge that from the outside. Um, I, I can't think of any way that you would know, honestly, other than starting small and starting with the least amount possible and titrating up slowly until you get your desired effect. Um. Because
0: everybody's so different,
1: right? Yes, exactly. And especially with the endocannabinoid system, it's a chicken or an egg situation where since it's so connected to the other systems, any change in any of those systems will cause changes in the endocannabinoid system. Um, There is this theory, it's a theory, although I, I believe there's a lot of evidence for it, um, that many of us have what's called clinical endocannabinoid deficiency, which means that we have less circulating endocannabinoids, which actually means we have more cannabinoid receptors. Um, and this can cause a slew of problems from like GI issues, mental health, chronic pain. Um, and it's, you know, it's still, it's still in the early stages to being, we're, we're still early to being able to understand all of this and how genetics play a role in into this.
0: Um, when we when we had uh, Doctor Russo on uh, a few months back, and well, heck, probably a few years back now, we had him on to talk about his uh, clinical endocannabinoid deficiency paper, and um, he he talked about this this evolving idea of the uh, uh, endocannabinoid tone, the cannabinoid tone, and and he said at the time that you know we weren't really sure how we were going to measure it but but people were starting to use this vocabulary to talk about the general I don't know veracity of the endocannabinoids present in the body. You know whether you had many or whether or not you had few, or or whether or not your system was sluggish. Um, but we haven't talked to him about that in a long time, and and I know you're not Dr. Rusto, so I'm I'm asking for your opinion, not not his, of course. But um, what are you seeing as the state of the science? Because you know you are you are a re, you know a more recent PhD, and you are in the trenches doing you know basic cannabinoid science every day does this idea of a cannabinoid tone is it is it still being played with or have we moved past that
1: i mean i believe that i have low endocannabinoid tone and i know other scientists who feel the same way i mean it's it's really there is no way of clinically testing it yet you know if i went to my doctor and i asked hey can you check the level of my endocannabinoids um, first of all they don 't have yeah, you a get test, a blank
0: stare <laughs> a
1: test to do that, but you know second of all its it 's really, really difficult to measure the endocannabinoids because they um, they degrade they oxidize really really easily They're, it's it 's difficult, so there are many reasons why the endocannabinoid system has been um, a little bit sluggish in research behind like other salt systems, like serotonin and dopamine are like salt based systems. You know, you're cooking in the kitchen. It's easier to clean a glass that had salt water in it than it is to clean a glass that had like butter mixed with maple syrup in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, it's the same when you get to the molecular scale. So if, if not, if not, maybe even a little bit more difficult when things get sticky. Um, but in, in going back to the endocannabinoid tone and the state of it, um, I think that there is a lot more research coming out. Like more recently, uh, I've seen some more clinical data on um, you know different instances of people with chronic health conditions where they're finding hey this has they have low endocannabinoids. Like the ones that come to mind are um, autism spectrum disorder and PTSD. Um, both there have been clinical studies for both of those populations that show that you have a decreased amount of circulating endocannabinoids. Um, and with PTSD, they've actually shown that that either it's a chicken or an egg, there's an increase in the number of CB1 receptors. And so in theory, if you were, you know, to have a clinical endocannabinoid deficiency and like, you know, I'll just talk about myself. I believe I have low endocannabinoids. I don't I don't make enough of them. Um, and this is how cannabis helps me because the molecules in cannabis mimic the endocannabinoids. And so I have a sub threat, I have a low level of endocannabinoids and it causes me a, a myriad of symptoms, really, and if I use cannabis products, my body is feeling like a restoration of balance because even though i 'm low in endocannabinoids i 'm giving my body phytocannabinoids that restore that that signaling i don 't know if that does, does that does that makes sense yeah,
0: absolutely, as a matter of fact, I would think that just about everybody is experiencing uh, endocannabinoid deficiency. If you look at what the general causes are, which are you know generally uh, you know stress, questionable street sleep, questionable nutrition, environmental toxins, and immune suppressing pharmaceuticals. I mean that's American life.
1: It's funny you mentioned nutrition because the I mean the endocannabinoids are omega six fatty acids, <laughs> and yeah we often we often don't think about how you know pushing for a certain. Uh, you know, high carb, low fat diets would affect your endocannabinoid tone. I mean, most, yeah, I, I agree. It's most people potentially have a deficiency and the only thing to say though is that like you don't know this right i mean this is the only thing left clinically is to to actually go in there and figure it out and i think it's it's in progress to an, to go all the way back to answering the question um it is in progress and i i do believe i have spoken to many people who believe that endocannabinoid deficiency is real um and so far in terms of like a theory and in calling it a theory there hasn't been anything to refute it um, so that's important.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so here, around here, we pretty much take it as fact. So it's interesting actually to hear, you know, a, um, a, a frontline scientist like you referring to it as a theory, because we're all like sold already, you know? It's so like, yeah, oh, I mean, makes, yeah, gravity. Is it, <laughs> I mean, gravity is a theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Well, good point. So so let's talk. You really attracted my attention when you said that over the course of our lives, the amount and sorts of receptors that we have come and go. That's super interesting to me. and. And then the part that um, you, know, you mentioned that the cannabinoids are, are fatty acids, and um, last episode we had um, Dr. Chris Spooner on, and he was encouraging everybody to take uh, fish oil supplements as a, as a way to support your endocannabinoid system. So I'm going to give you kind of like a, a big a big area question, and you can take it where you wish. I'm curious to know if our receptors increase and decrease during our lives. Are they is is this increase and decrease more related to well, I guess I wanna know what factors are, right? Is it is it age, is it diet, is it everything? Because most of us want to, I would think want to increase the m- number of receptors in our body so that we can process more cannabinoids for our overall health, and so we would want to build those up and If there are things that we can do or awarenesses we should have at times in of life that the the number of receptors would go down, that would probably be good information for us to know
1: absolutely and i and I do want to point out that for some people, it would be good to have your receptor levels actually go down, which would be like making more endocannabinoids it's all about a balance so you're trying to find you're trying to find the right balance and some of us have too many receptors and some of us have not not enough um and it's interesting about the omega-3 uh for fish oil supplements my my very first research project ever was looking at um, omega-3 and omega-6 dietary fatty acids in in mice um and seeing like what changes that had on on acosinoids and which are downstream of the endocannabinoids and i think so in terms of what causes the changes in receptor density, I mean, there's a number of factors. Age is certainly a factor. I lean away from just saying everything because that's just a non-answer, right? <laughs> um, um, but unfortunately, it's, it's pretty much true. But I mean, age is certainly a, fast, a factor because the endocannabinoid system is really important for a huge number of very important processes, right? Like the the basic the basic ones are metabolism immune system and inflammation and then overall brain activity brain hyperactivity um, so those are really really important tasks and they have different needs depending on whether or not we're still growing as we're children or as we you know as we age and, and mature um, so age is certainly a factor and and it does change uh, the other factor that you mentioned stress stress is a factor because um, cortisol and elevated levels of stress factors in the brain will change it. And, and this is where we, we get into the chicken and the egg, because it's hard to know whether, like, whether the endocannabinoid system and the dysregulation of it is the source of the problem or whether it's a symptom. Um, however, a, an unbalanced, a quote unquote, like unbalanced or dysregulated endocannabinoid system has been associated with almost every single disorder or pathology. Like I, I don't think I can think of a single one that hasn't been associated with the endocannabinoid system other than like genetic mutations or genetic disorders. Um, that have a very clear like, molecular mechanism.
0: And it's funny, because that's kind of a challenge, right? Because it's great to have this one herb that can help us in so many ways, but it also has caused so many people to say, oh, what is with this cannabis medicine? They talk about it like it's a panacea, like, it's, like it solves everything. And, and what I try to tell people is like, no, it doesn't solve everything. It just solves one thing. But that one <laughs> thing is the endocannabinoid system, and it touches all the systems. It makes it very hard for people to believe
1: that's, that's a great way of putting it. The way, the way that I usually explain it is that, um, you know, the, the cannabinoids are really powerful anti-inflammatories. And it's my personal belief that almost all of these disorders come from, like, dysregulations and in inflammation. And not, not inflammation in terms of, like, oh, I sprained my ankle and now my ankle has swollen up and is inflamed. But, you know, at the cellular and molecular level, inflammation is just inflammatory signaling molecules. Um, and like you said about, about, you know, endocannabinoid tone being kind of an American, having low endocannabinoid tone being an American feature, there's, there's a lot of evidence that shows that having high in- systemic inflammation is, is a problem. Um, and that we we don't really have any way of, of knowing or understanding where we're at on our threshold until we remove something, right? So it's like, And like speaking from my personal experience, like I have a lot of inflammation all the time. Stress causes inflammation and then also like chronic pain, inflammation, GI inflammation. Um, There's so many things with which I think inflammation plays a mechanistic factor because it's, I mean, in terms of our immune system, like what is inflammation at the molecular level? It really is the most basic way that our body signals to itself. Hey, something is wrong here. Like, if you think of it as, like, one cell trying to talk to another cell in the body, um, when it releases inflammatory, like, inflammatory factors, it's trying... This is one part of your body, one single cell, trying to tell the other part of your body, hey, something's wrong here. Uh, And so having super high levels of of inflammation causes just a a large number of problems. And we often get, like, desensitized to it because we're just living with systemically high inflammation um and so when yes cannabis has um like you know people are saying oh it's a cure-all i do not believe it's a cure-all but i do believe that it's a powerful anti-inflammatory and that inflammation plays a crucial role in most disorders and is really you know not like underappreciated but it's just that it's not really talked about as inflammation because in the general public when we think of inflammation we think of like a swollen lip or Mm -hmm. or a bruised ankle not the Um, signaling
0: version of it
1: exactly uh and inflammation is probably the most basic cellular response to stress that any type of of life has and that we developed. it's it's part of what's called the uh the innate immune system so like our immune systems have two different two different sides of it and Inflammation is the most basic side. And so cannabis helps by being a powerful anti-inflammatory. And there are so many symptoms that are mechanistically related to systemic inflammation.
0: So if we were, we've, so, we've been talking about how the endocannabinoid system is actually integrated with all the systems, and I like what you said early on that you know you you actually see it all as one system, not really as discrete parts because they're all there's so much interplay. And and in passing, we all just kind of say, oh, you know, the endocannabinoid system is the body's homeostasis uh, device. It's it you know if something's running hot, it cools it down. If something's sluggish, it picks it up. Well that's that's great as far as like copywriting goes, right? But what happens at a at a more chemical level, like like we did earlier on, what what happens that what, what is the method of action that the endocannabinoid system takes to create homeostasis?
1: so i would say the to, and it's it's different in different parts of the body in different parts of the brain it could even be different but the number one like most generic way of describing it would be that it it can quiet like different cells and it, it tells things to be quiet so sometimes you hear people saying like oh cannabis makes you slow or cannabis reduces your brain activity um you know technically that's true But that's not always a bad thing because sometimes there's too much brain activity and it's desirable to quiet parts of the brain that are not supposed to be speaking. Um, so if you think about the way that, if we're talking about, I'm talking about signaling now from one brain cell to another brain cell. You could think about it as a one-way street or like, have you ever played the game telephone? Sure. Where, yeah, where one person whispers in someone's ear and then, and so on. And it's it's one direction. Um, that's how neurotransmitters fire. So they go from, when you have one so brain they're like, cell. They're,
0: they're like an end-to-end daisy chain.
1: Yes, that's exactly, the, they're end to end. And you have one neuron, and then you have what's called a synapse, which is the place or the space between the neuron. And then you have the, the, the other end. So you have a speaking neuron and a listening. Now, do, does that make sense? Yes, There's yep. a talking, a talking side, and then a, a listening side. Um, so the presynapse before is the talking side, and the postsynapse is the listening side. And for all of the classic neurotransmitters, they fire from the presynapse across the synapse to the postsynapse. So they go from speaking side to listening side. And the endocannabinoids are the only molecules that go the opposite direction. And so the endocannabinoids are created in the post synapse on the listening side and they transport across the synapse in what's called a retrograde fashion, like opposite, and they go to the presynapse. So essentially if you have a long daisy chain, if let's, let's say in your telephone line of one way daisy chains, you have one telephone in there that's talking way too loud or way too much. The only way for us to quiet it, other than finding a way to go all the way around the daisy chain again to quiet it, is through the endocannabinoid system, which talks in the opposite direction and says, hey, like, can you just be quiet?
0: And and what is sent? What what is actually sent? Is that a particular chemical that's sent upstream? It's and that, the endocannabinoid. Oh, it is the endocannabinoid itself, and so then it goes and it, it will interact with a receptor there, and yep. then and then depending on the nature of how it's talking, it'll either be a agonist or antagonist or a what would you say, reverse agonist.
1: Inverse agonists. So, agonist. so all the all the endocannabinoids are um, some, not all of them, but the main ones, anandamide and 2AG, are agonists, partial agonists at the at the cannabinoid receptors. So if we're going back to the the pre synapse and post synapse, the talking and the listening end. You have the endocannabinoids, they get created on the listening end, and then the receptors are on the talking end. So they are being transported across the synapse, they bind to the receptors, and they activate them. And when you activate the cannabinoid receptors, it activates this very specific g-protein that is inhibitory and that g-protein follows a signaling cascade that ultimately it changes the voltage all of all of our cells have a voltage potential it's like an it's an electrical potential to fire so if you think about it like whether or not a brain cell let's say this brain cell is firing way too often if you then synthesize the endocannabinoids and then they activate the cannabinoid receptors the cannabinoid receptors will change the voltage of that entire cell so that it's less likely to fire.
0: I follow this. So, and, and yeah, please, it's ask less, me a, please ask me a question. Yeah, so since skip it's, into- I'm just catching up. So, so, and because it's less likely to fire, that is its response to the up chain saying, shh. Like don't, yep. don't talk so much. That's really great. You know, me, I really, and, and you know, there's actually liberation in this information. I can't be the only one listening to you going, Oh my God, I've wondered this for so long, but most people are, uh, most people don't have this education, uh, And, and to have it be so contemporary that they can speak to us in this level of detail. So this is, this is really fantastic. Um, So thank you. And we are going to go ahead and take our first break. Um, You are listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is cannabis scientist and educator, Miyabi Shields. There is no doubt that autoflowering cannabis plants have finally come into their own, and Night Owl Seeds works tirelessly, bringing you autoflower genetics that are reliable, thriving, and with extraordinary terpene profiles. Night Owl Seeds is an industry leader because of the focus work of their founder, Daz. Daz is passionate about the cannabis plant and pushing what autoflowers can do, and cultivators know that these efforts show through in his seeds. And night owl seeds really are extraordinary. Just take a look at the thousands of photos by fans on Instagram. The proof is there and obvious. Terpenes are complex and rich. Plants have vigor. If you are a fan of Mephisto genetics like I am, you'll likely also love night owl seeds. Night owl founder Daz worked with Mitch Mephisto to build the Mephisto brand for years, including breeding Mephisto's much-loved Sour Stomper and Cosmic Queen cultivars. I'm growing both Night Owl and Mephisto this year because I want the best. And Night Owl Seeds knows how to cultivate community too. Daz puts out great stickers, exclusive packaging for limited runs, and desirable freebies. He really draws you in if you love creative branding. Night Owl even has the Secret Owl Society Text Club. Just text the word Night Owl one word to 760-670-3130 for early announcements and exclusive opportunities. Of course, you can see lots of photos and find out about upcoming drops by following the Night Owl Seeds Instagram too at That's daz.nightowl. That's da Owl. You can get your packs of night owl seeds at several distributors, including DC Seed Exchange, Insane Seeds, and Hembra Genetics. That's night owl seeds. There's a difference because we're different. For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family-owned and providing reliable, high-yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and backcrosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband, and their award-winning Blueberry Muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous freak show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese land race. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever visit humboldtseedcompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics download their catalog and find out where you can pick them up you can also check out their instagram at the humboldt seed company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant humboldt seed company let them know shango sent you If you're an autoflowering cannabis enthusiast, this event's for you. Announcing the 2021 Autoflower Cup, August 6th, 7th, and 8th in Up, Washington, just outside of Seattle. Presented by Camp Ruderalis, this gathering has something for everyone. There's the Autoflower Cup competition, of course, but it's so much more than that. There'll be a stunden glass hookah lounge, a pop-up magical butter chocolate shop, and waterfront marketplace with an array of vendors. There will be an old-school autoflower seed swap, joint-rolling competition, cannabis cooking demos, solventless squishing demos, and late-night documentary screenings of both Dosed and Fantastic Fungi. The food will be lit, too, including Chef Sebastian Carosi's award-winning classics like Elk Chili, Kobe Beef Kimchi Dogs, Oyster Po' Boys, and Razor Clam Chowder. Enjoy the campfire chili and oyster chowder cook-off, wild oyster harvesting, mushroom foraging, and s'mores around the campfires each night. Each day there, Dan Jimmy of Mandalorian will teach about autoflowers, and there will be presentations on closet cultivation and hunting for psilocybin mushrooms. The competition is open to everyone, commercial and home growers. There is a category for photo period plants, too, so check out the theautoflowercup2021.com for those details. Clearly, there will be plenty of cannabis around, but due to state law, it won't be supplied by the event, but there will be easy public toking, which is why this is a strictly over-21 event. You can camp, rent a cabin, or stay at a local Airbnb. Glamping and RV packages are available too. I'm happy to say that Shaping Fire is a sponsor of the event, and I'll be there too. I look forward to connecting with other Autoflower fans like me. So get all the details at theautoflowercup2021.com and follow the Instagram at theautoflowercup2021. And I'll see you in August at Autoflower Cup when we bring the Autoflower family together to celebrate. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is cannabis scientist and educator Miyabi Shields. So during the first set, we were talking about the endocannabinoid system itself, the, the system of receptors and, and how they work to keep our body in homeostasis. Um, clearly, we could have continued on on that topic, and it's and so fascinating, but we're going to shift a little bit during second set and focus on individual cannabinoids, because since most of what we try to learn here on shaping fire are things that we can use either for our own health or, or the, you know, the, for the health of the people that we are, we love. Um, you know, we try to keep things very, um, um, very usable, very actionable information. So let's let's start talking about individual uh, cannabinoids. So Miyabi, you know, most of us have seen the chart um, showing how cannabinoids degrade from starting as CBG or CBN and then degrading down into other cannabinoids when exposed to time or heat, I believe it is. So it's not really ex- usually explained why, though. Um, and, uh, you know, I've seen on your TikTok many times you play with with the molecular models. And I know you've got uh, an intimate understanding of this. So if you'd walk us through it, what is happening and why is it happening at the chemical level?
1: All right. So we're going to basically go all the way back and just talk about how that everything in the universe, I mentioned earlier that in, in the body, everything comes down to a chemical equilibrium, but actually this applies to everything in the entire universe, pretty much. Although I'm not sure about I'm not sure if you go way out into space if that applies, <laughs> but um, but pretty much everything comes down to basically energy and entropy so the reason why these molecules degrade is because if you leave them open to oxygen so let's let me back up if you were to have the molecules by themselves like in a complete vacuum and and or you can add what we call like an inert gas which is like argon or or helium it's it's a gas that is non-reactive if you were to have the molecule and it were to be kept in the dark In some, either a vacuum or a a gas that's non-volatile, and if it were to be kept very, very cold, like as cold as you possibly could keep it, um, it in theory would be stable that way forever. The only reason why things degrade with heat, light, and exposure to air and oxygen is because even though we see air around us and we don't think anything of it, there's a lot of, of things floating around in the air, mostly oxygen and nitrogen, um, and some other forms like carbon dioxide and, and other, <laughs> depending on where you are and what what's in your air, right? Um, but, you know, have you heard that... Um, the story where it's like, hey, you ask the fish, how's the water? And the fish goes like, what's water? Yeah, <laughs> um, we're we're pretty much the same way with air. So we don't really think too much about it. But there's plenty of things in air that when you expose them over time, will will come to have a chemical reaction with these molecules. Um, and the cannabinoids are quite stable, but there are certain areas of of it that are prone to oxidation. That's the main um, chemical reaction that occurs. Uh, and then slowly from there, things will continue to break down because oxygen is pretty reactive, um, in terms of like the types of, of molecule or the types of atoms that you introduce. It introduces charges. Whenever you have charges around, they're likely to interact with other charges, um, and that's that's the reason so the reason why it occurs is just that it's it's chemically favorable um so that's another reason why if you heat if you heat things you're giving them energy and it just happens faster so the reason why heat is a factor is just because it adds energy into the it system speeds up for, the process exactly for this thing to occur that would have occurred regardless um and yeah there's i guess if you look at a molecule there are certain areas of certain molecules that are more vulnerable to degradation or to like an, an, attack of, of an outside molecule. Um, and all of these things depend on how these atoms are linked together and how stable that link is to one another. Cause if you think about it, um, if you have seen my videos and you see the molecules are held together by these little plastic, um, you know they're they're just bonded together by these little plastic strings. Um, in my model, all of those pieces of plastic look the same, but in real life, they're all different um, and they're they're different strengths. Like some of the atoms are held together by a fishing line, and others are held together by steel poles. Mm.
0: So so different cannabinoids have got their weak spot where they're at the most risk.
1: Yep, and that that will change when you once you introduce a. you oxidize it, then everything changes again. Um, And that's one of the things I found so fascinating about chemistry Um, in the beginning is just this crazy, crazy amount of versatility That small, small changes in molecular structure cause giant changes, um, you know, downstream.
0: So let's talk about the the time of efficacy for, um, you know, two of our most favorite cannabinoids, uh, THC and CBD. So, (coughs) <coughs> Excuse me. So for for caregivers everywhere, we're often trying to explain to our patient um you know, the time frame that they're going to get relief. And, you know, most, most cannabis patients, especially at the beginning, they don't have a really good understanding of the endocannabinoid system. And honestly, most caregivers, even the ones with their heart in the right place, might not have that great of an understanding of the endocannabinoid system. They just know how to apply the medicine in ways that tend to get relief. And for that, everyone is grateful. However, you know, there are faster acting cannabinoids and there, there, are, there seem to be slower action of the cannabinoids as well. And I'm going to give you an example that's pretty common for caregivers to talk about, which I'm open to the possibility that this is not true, right? So you don't have to defend my position. If, if this is wrong, like call it out. But very often when we talk about CBD, people talk about benefits that you get now and benefits you get later. For example, um, if you are having, you know, an anxious day full of rumination, um, you can take some, you know, whole plant CBD and, uh, you know, something that's CBD dominant, and it will, um, you know, have a tendency to correct the balance of chemicals and or, um you know, hit the receptors that, that, that decrease your experience of dysphoria of anxiety. So, so so that would be your benefit potentially today, but over the long term, for example, after somebody has been taking CBD for you know four or six weeks, um, I'll often hear back from them and they'll say, "Oh yeah, you know, I um, I started taking CBD for my migraines, uh, but then the diarrhea that I've had for three years uh, cleared up." And and I explained to them, you know, in layman's terms, that one of the properties of a strong endocannabinoid system is that the the system goes through and does um, housekeeping, like cleaning the cilia and the gut of of the mucus, and so there's there's essentially gifts with purchase when you when you take CBD, <laughs> things that you never intended but which are totally great to have. So um, um, I'm very open to the possibility that there's scientific mess in that example, Miyabi. So 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 feel free to ch- you know correct me, but but essentially the part, part I'm trying to get at is. cannabinoids seems to have help now and help later. How does, how, what's up with that from your viewpoint as a scientist? So
1: I would say that, first of all, that it's not, it's absolutely not a pseudoscience and that it's definitely true that there are different types of effects that are separated. So help now would be what you would call an acute effect. That's something that's happening immediately. So we're gonna use CBD as the example. Um, CBD actually has very low affinity for the CB1 and CB2 receptors, but it has been shown to be what's called an allosteric modulator at the CB1 receptor, which is just a fancy way for saying it like binds to a different location. Um, but let's use CBD as, as an example. So the acute effect of CBD is when you are actually taking the CBD and like it happens within, like, let's say if you take it, if you take it orally, like like in a tincture or an edible, um, you know, it takes 45 minutes to an hour. And then like, maybe it lasts like two hours, maybe four hours that those effects that you feel right then are acute effects. So that's the effect of the molecule binding to the outside of the CB1 receptor. And it actually decreases the CB1 receptor's activity. Um, that would be an acute effect. The help later that you described help now being acute effect help later is what's called a, it's like a, a longer term effect. Um, this actually comes from how our body restructures itself. Our body does housekeeping. Like you mentioned the endocannabinoid system does housekeeping. Um, our body goes through all of its systems and does housekeeping pretty much. You're in a constant state of managing, what is happening now and what's going to happen in the future and what your body does when let's say you're taking a little bit of CBD. I take a bit of CBD every day. And what my body has done over time, it is, it has, it's is—it responded to that happening. So I get the acute effects from taking CBD every day, but then there's also these secondary long-term effects that happen later, which is your body restructuring and changing certain levels of receptors and changing certain levels of endocannabinoids and other, like, highly likely other signaling molecules like serotonin. Um, and actually this may seem like a little bit like scary that there's these two types of effects, but that's pretty much the entire premise of like SSRIs and Mm -hmm. anti like, you know, mood, mood stabilizing medications. Many of those also function in the same way where they take a few weeks to, to see actually whether or not they're going to, you know, have, have a beneficial effect because they work on this, what is a secondary mechanism. um, That's a longer term thing. So Our bodies do these things. So every single receptor, when it's it's activated, um, will eventually go through a process to to inactivate it. Part of this is our body takes it. It's called endocytosis, and our body, like, recycles the receptors. You could think about it as, like, a recycling program. Um, And if you think about it as a recycling program, every time our body recycles these receptors, it's kind of, like, counting and taking into account how many of each type is being recycled and then it will adjust the amount that it creates like in, in wow. response to that.
0: That's, that's incredible. It's, 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 um, I mean, I know we don't want to put too much consciousness into these processes, but it's like a thinking machine. It's self, it's self calibrating based on what our body needs. And I love that.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's between knowing that things are happening completely like based on just chance or luck as as you put it earlier but as i was putting it chemical like yep chemical affinity and energy everything is happening based on that but it's it's this magical combination that is quite conscious i mean there is the reason why this is happening is to try and keep us well and to try to keep us alive and and functioning Um, And life is miraculous in that way.
0: (laughs) Before we move on, I want to hit on one more example of this acute versus longer term uh, impacts. And let's talk about THC with inflammation, since you sound like you're very deep on inflammation as well. So... we talk about THC being useful both in the moment, acutely for inflammation pain, and then long term for um, inflammation as well. And for lack of having heard a better explanation, how I normally ask, how I normally explain it to patients when they stop me, you know, like after a talk or something, I'll say, "Well, you know, if you take uh, THC now, even at sub-perceptual doses, um, you are decreasing." Uh, some inflammation now but even more so you're decreasing your experience of the pain that comes from inflammation now which makes you feel like you have less inflammation but then if you keep on taking THC every three or four hours the natural anti inflammation characteristics of THC keep on for lack of a better term beating down on the inflammation and or, or shushing I guess you know telling telling those um, receptors to be quiet and 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 then over time the inflammation goes down because the those cells are not yelling as much that there is a problem. So I don't know if that's the correct science, but there does seem to be this dichotomy between THC's helping an inflammation patient now in the next three hours versus a month from now when they've been taking THC all that time and they're all like, gosh, you know, my, my arthritis is significantly improved.
1: Oh, absolutely. One of, I guess what I would say this has to do with is that inflammation is like a threshold or an exponential response where you feel pain above a certain threshold, right? um, Of inflammation and your body responds to that by firing, like, let's just call it like a pain signaling. It's like a, it's like a chain depending on where your inflammation is. So actually rheumatoid arthritis runs in my family and I wake up with stiff fingers all, all the time right now. Um, and the pain would originate in the nerves of my hand. So the inflammation originates in your hand and the, but you actually feel the pain in your brain, right? Mm -hmm. So it's true that they have anti-inflammatory properties. It's also true that if you reduce inflammation and you decrease the amount of pain that you feel overall, that you're decreasing the strength of the pathway of pain, which is something that's, um... You know, it's difficult it's it's a difficult topic and it's difficult to prove, but there's this saying that ha- that people, neuroscientists say it all the time. You say, I don't know if you've heard it, but it's neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm. That's this is the this is the saying because when you have brain cells that are in a circuit and they're used to firing in this circuit, they become stronger. So Actually, if you think about them as like roads, uh, if you imagine like when you're, if your brain is totally naive, it's like a desert or an area and there's, there's no roads. There's no point from A to B. So everything's just a dirt path. You start making the dirt path, but then over time you start using this one path more and more and more. Let's say that's the p- the pathway for inflammatory pain, right? Your body becomes really sensitized to that path because you're using it so much that it's not a dirt road anymore. It turns into a street mm-hmm. that then turns into a major highway that then turns, it turns into the fastest route of signaling and our ner- our brain cells are like that. So when they fire together, they wire together more tightly and it's easier for them to go down these pathways. Um, and so it's it's interesting, specifically with pain, it, it's so difficult to piece apart whether or not it, it's inflammation, certainly, but also whether it's it's a sensitization to your body, even, even feeling pain. Um, and this is, I don't have the answers for this either. This is just, you know, me talking out loud, thinking about, inflammation and and how people feel inflammation and pain, because like from, from my perspective, I have chronic joint pain. I have a lot of form. I have a lot of injuries, um, that I've been told that these injuries are the cause of my pain, but I've also had a lot of scans and things where I didn't disclose to anyone that I had prior injuries and no one can see anything structurally wrong, um, with any, (laughs) any part of it. Um, and, there's this, there's this piece that I guess you cannot prove, which is where is the sensitiz- like where is the sensitization to pain? Part of it is in the inflammatory factors, which is the acute effect, which you were saying. Part of it is that, that first effect, which is that there are inflammatory factors there, and that cannabis can help by reducing that inflammation. And then the second part of it is breaking the cycle of firing your pain cells all the time or your your pain signaling pathway all the time because like the less than your body uses that pathway the less likely it will be to sort of follow down that pathway you know i've i've been talking a lot about just like entropy and chemical like statistical chance of something happening and and everything in the body just runs downhill (laughs) So,
0: if M- meaning it's the, like the easiest path for yes, mm-hmm. and
1: and if and if it's the easiest path for your body to feel pain because your body has been in pain for years and years and years, it will be difficult to break that cycle without removing the pain. Um, and then there's obviously the fact that some there are some aspects of pain that are structural that are caused that the cannabinoids can only help so much with, right? Like if you have a nerve impingement or. Something that's actually like causing like a physical cause. Yeah, something but, that's
0: mechanically wrong. Um,
1: but I think, uh, for from from my opinion, a big piece of the long term benefits of cannabis for chronic pain is breaking this cycle, and also in what I mentioned earlier in the in the quieting or the shushing of the cells, because some of us are are hypersensitive to a lot. I mean, I'm I'm hypersensitive to a lot of stimuli, not just not just pain, but other types of things too, right? Like auditory stimuli or, or like certain types of like tactile feelings. And, you know, we, we don't know between, between person to person it, you can't tell what, what someone's threshold for pain is because pain is completely subjective. You know, we, we can only feel what we feel in in our bodies which is why those
0: pain charts are always so unsatisfying (laughs) you know i feel seven today or six or sometimes they show you know uh stick drawing faces it's like oh gosh this is a fool's errand from the beginning
1: right and and as speaking from someone who's pretty much lived like my entire life at like a five or above like at a at a certain point it just starts becoming like a status quo and your body actually your body actually can think of it that way if that if that makes sense like your body gets into these patterns that it will perpetuate um and i think that in some ways that's that's a way that the cannabinoids can help is by decreasing that that sensitivity um and then there's there's another follow-up piece which is that the cannabinoids and the metabolite so we talked about thc and you mentioned that like you know if there's an onset of action and then it's it's metabolized by the body and it's it is sequestered away in our fat and it gets stored in our fat and that's that's one of the reasons why you can test positive on a, on a drug test for weeks and weeks afterwards. Um, is because our body still is processing and releasing these metabolites. So if you're using over a longer course of time, then you have a buildup of these metabolites. Um, it's something called like the depot effect. It's actually um, something that is harnessed for other medications, like birth control is the first one that comes to mind, um, utilizes the depot effect for like a long term release, essentially. Um, so that's a whole nother mechanism in which like a long-term effect of, of cannabis can, can build up and be slowly released because even though those metabolites are not psychoactive, it doesn't mean that they're not still circulating at low levels causing like anti-inflammatory effects. Um, and that's something that I think is, is, is possible, but to my knowledge, I don't know if either of those things have been like proven
0: right on. I follow that. So let's talk about tolerance breaks for a moment. <laughs> So we understand that tolerance breaks are, are good so that we can increase our sensitivity to cannabinoids. Um, and we also know that anybody who works with patients knows that trying to convince a patient to go on a tolerance break is very difficult because if, you know, for, for a lot of people they get to cannabis last and then when it works, they're all like, well, none of the pharma works without terrible side effects and they hold on to cannabis so dearly. And now we're telling them to, you know, take two, three, seven days off which seems unreal. And I think every, all of us who work with patients would, would be served by having a better understanding of what happens at a chemical level during a tolerance break so that we can make it more, um, you know more real, more mechanical for the patient that we're trying to encourage to give up their most effective medication for a few days. So will you go through what happens in our body during a tolerance break?
1: Yep, absolutely. So when when you are using <laughs> cannabis regularly, and so I, I use cannabis regularly and I regularly take tolerance breaks. Um, and when you're using it regularly, what your body does have a compensatory reaction, which is what I was describing earlier, is it, it decreases the level of CB1 receptors that are present. And this is kind of an oversimplification oversimplica- because there are other changes that occur too. But for the most part, when you have that decrease in CB1 receptors, you notice it because you have to increase the amount of cannabis that you use to get the same effect, right? Um, and this is at the this is kind of at the crutch of of tolerance is you. Your body has less and less CB1 receptors. And actually, you know, I personally believe that a certain level of tolerance is beneficial for me. I maintain a low level of tolerance. Like I never, I never take a tolerance break to completely resensitize. Because if I completely resensitize, my body goes 100% the, the opposite direction and it makes way too many CB1 receptors. Mm-hmm. So essentially when you're talking to, or it, what would be my opinion, if I was talking to cannabis patients about tolerance breaks and why they're necessary, it's because you're trying to balance the endocannabinoid system. And when you use cannabis every day, you're constantly lowering, not constant. it doesn't happen like super quickly, like not to, don't want to make anyone look paranoid, but you're lowering your level of CB1 receptors. Right. Like as you use cannabis, if you use it every day, you use it over time, you're going to be lowering those CB1 receptors. When you go on a tolerance break, it allows your body to make more CB1 receptors and increase them again. And you're kind of always shooting to find a sweet spot. And if you just continuously use cannabis and you never take a tolerance break, you're continuously developing tolerance and you're going to be continuously lowering your CB1 receptor density. And for some people, there's not a huge downside to that. But for others, there's big negative side effects. And and it all depends on the patient and what their goals are, Right. right? Because one of the biggest problems with tolerance is that when you develop a tolerance, then the cannabis is no longer effective for what you need it to be effective for. Um, And I was just talking to another scientist about this is that in our opinion, the reason why we take tolerance breaks is because we need the plant to work when we need it. Um, And maybe that would be a way to, to describe it to people who are maybe hesitant to try even taking a tolerance break is that you don't want the plant to lose efficacy you don't want it to stop working. Um, and it's possible that that happens when you develop tolerance. And it's also possible that continuing to develop tolerance will lead to other negative side effects, like having problems sleeping or having like other, like there's some people who get um, withdrawal symptoms of, of anxiety when they go to take a tolerance break. So essentially the more tolerance you develop, the more difficult it becomes to take a tolerance break. And it's, it's always easier just to regularly take you know, build breaks into your routine. Um, and I, again, though, this is, this is going to be different from, from person to person, because I feel like I'm hypocritical even saying this, because I do maintain a, a level of tolerance. Like I pretty much take, I take very short tolerance breaks. Um, but I don't take breaks that are longer than a week. Um, and I don't, I don't completely resensitize my system because, my system as it is on a complete tolerance break is not a high quality of life for me. So it, it, I don't want to be, I don't want to like mislead or, you know, spread, spread negative, um, negative suggestions. This is just like my experience is that I I do maintain a low, a very, very low tolerance. um, And I find that to be beneficial. And I think it's, it's all about finding that balance And maybe explaining it it in that way where you need the balance of having the risk, like the, the relief, like having the plant actually provide you with an effective relief balanced with having the
0: right level of receptors in your brain. Right on. I follow this. <clears throat> and, um, and it makes a lot of sense, too, because there are a lot of patients who they do want to take some amount of tolerance breaks so that the, the cannabis is more effective for them on a daily basis. They want to get their receptors and, and you know cannabinoids more in balance. But at the same time, going down to zero tolerance could be very extreme as well. Because I know that if I, if, if I have to stop um, using cannabinoids for a while for some some reason when I come back sometimes I get so high that like it's it's dysphoric right or people who have got um, severe pain and they use cannabinoids at work to treat their pain well you know if they were to go uh, a significant amount of time for a for a complete tolerance break well they may just be like super stoned at work you know <laughs> like there there really is you know advanced patients with a lot of experience about cannabis really embrace the whole idea of individualized cannabinopathic care because we are all different but at the beginning we have to give patients general ideas and then you know it takes them almost no time you know once a patient has got cannabinoids they become you know scientists of their own body and it's and it's great to see
1: I think that that's an amazing piece of, you know, on one side, I know that it's something that people view as a very negative thing about cannabis and about plant medicine just in general is that everyone says, oh, it works for some people and it does nothing for other people. And And it's I think that that's an amazing gift to be able to be empowered, you know, with with the option. Um, and I do think that having like guidelines, though, is like, for example, if I was talking to someone new who was who is just getting into cannabis, I absolutely would tell them to take tolerance breaks. I, I also think that tolerance breaks are really great, you know, clarity or relativity where then you can approach your use again every time you take a tolerance break it allows you to rehash exactly what therapeutic benefits you're getting from the plant, how it's helping you. And it it gives you more perspective, I think, um, on that. So I, I absolutely would in the beginning like advise people to take tolerance breaks. And then like you said, um, most of the time, you know, if this, when, when cannabis works for someone and like you said, it's a last resort. I mean, I have to admit like cannabis was, not the first thing that I tried. Um, and it was in many ways, a a last resort. Like I was not, (laughs) I was not well. Um, and when people are when you, when you come to that and you find something that works for you, it drives you to be so interested in it because, especially in this prohibition era, when we've been educated, or at least I was educated, that there you know there's nothing worse than being an addict and that it's going to ruin your life and that it's this horrible horrible thing. Um, and then you know you experience this relief from it that you don't get from anything else. I think that instills a passion of understanding of health on a, on a deeper level. And I think that's one of the greatest things about cannabis. Um, I think personal empowerment and personal responsibility in our, in our lives is important and, and a huge positive thing. So I would encourage like other people, you know, listening and people that like spreading the knowledge and the, and the education that there's a lot of power in personal experience. And I know scientists are always talking about, you know clinical research and having to have you know having trying to have the most experimental hard scientific data i I agree with that I think that research is necessary um, but I also think that there is a huge huge amount of value in in the personal stories and in the personal narrative and Um, we're all a part of that
0: so right on the the oral history of medicine so i've got one one last quick question for you before we go to commercial these tolerance breaks that we're talking about um that don't get rid of all of your tolerance but bring you down to i don't know more usable levels while we know that they are different for every single person we have to recommend something to people for their like first time until so they can start start somewhere um when you take one of these tolerance breaks you said you you know rarely do it more than a week. Okay. But what's your regular? Like my regular is 48 hours. I go two full calendar days with, with not anything. And, and on day three, I seem to be, you know, reset. What, how does it work for you? And what do you recommend?
1: Wow. That's, that's so funny. We are very, very similar. Um, so yeah, it all depends on what your therapeutic minimum is. So the therapeutic minimum is like the smallest dose that you can use to get the benefit that you're looking for. Right. And, and each of us has a different minimum. Some, some people have a therapeutic minimum far, far above mine. Mine's actually pretty low. Um, so let's say that you have a therapeutic minimum that is like well above like 50 milligrams of, of like an edible, an edible dose or something, something relatively large. Right. Um, it would probably mean that you would have to take tolerance breaks more often if you wanted them to be as short as what you and I mm-hmm. are are talking about. For me, my normal thing is I go usually somewhere between thirty six to forty eight hours at least every week and a half or so. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that seems to that seems to keep things. I don't have a regular schedule. I did um, for a while <laughs> when I proposed my PhD thesis. I was. I was like, oh, I'm proposing my PhD thesis, let me also propose this other (laughs) thesis in my life. And that's actually when I first introduced CBD um, into my regimen. And I was keeping a notebook and I was writing everything down. I was very rigid for about three years with it um, and developed a a routine that now I can sort of just sense um, by feel. But sometimes if I have, if it lines up where I'm, I'm free and I have like a, a time on the weekend to take like a macro dose or a, a larger dose than I, I normally would, the beneficial effects can last for far longer for me. And so that's, sometimes I like kick off my tolerance break, so to say, with like a larger dose than I normally would, and then I, I experience benefits that last for a few days after that um, and it can begin like what would be a, a tolerance break. Um, and then another thing that's important about tolerance breaks that I just wanna hit on before we go to commercial is that it's an, it's a good time when you're on a tolerance break also to think about your diet and water intake and other nutritional um, things. It's just, it's just a good time to think about it because you're already doing something different. Um, so since you're already doing something different and, and taking a tolerance break, you could think about really trying to you know make change like i you mentioned about like fish oil supplements or like even just in general uns, unsaturated fatty acids right like olive oil or coconut oil or fish or thinking about about your diet and um sleep hygiene and, and other times I, I use tolerance breaks as times to think about my overall health
0: it's like a little like, mental retreat. Um yep. One more, one more thing before we go to break. Th- this, <laughs> these tolerance breaks. This is all cannabinoids, right? You can't just stop THC but keep using CBD, right? You have to. You you stop all cannabinoids because you're trying to give the whole system a break, right?
1: Oh, I never stopped taking CBD, but that's oh, just me. That's, that's just me personally, um, okay. and I use like pretty low low doses of it. I didn't. I don't experience. Um, I don't experience any like tolerance with CBD, but I, lo- I use at much lower concentrations. I have, I definitely have spoken to people, like specifically people with seizures or migraines that use that benefit from like larger doses of CBD. It will, they will develop tolerance um, to it. So. I do cycle them um, in terms of like CBG, CBD, THC, but THC is probably the only one that I take mandatory tolerance breaks from.
0: As far as how the receptors respond, as far as like making more or making less, which is essentially what we're trying to do with the tolerance break, will it, if we're still taking CBD and we're not taking THC, do the THC receptors go down in number as we want them to?
1: so in theory cbd has almost like an opposite effect on the cb1 receptor as thc so in theory it would not although i i can't say like with 100 percent knowledge that it's true because so here's the theory right like thc activates the cb1 receptor and it's that activation that causes the decrease Um, and cbd actually like it doesn't inactivate it. it, it binds to the outside and it turns it down. Like it turns down the volume. So it acts in a totally different mechanism. It's not clear to me whether CBD has cha- has caused changes in CB1 receptor density. I, I would need to look into that to see if, if anything has been done before, but I'm yeah. not in, in theory, it doesn't interact the same, the same exact way. Um, but I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, what
0: you're saying makes sense, though. I mean, there's a lot of the stuff that we talk about that we have to go on. You know, your educated intuition because this research hasn't been done. But you're certainly got a perspective and a and a vista point, a viewpoint of the 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 medicine, which is you know a lot better than most of ours. So so (laughs) I'd rather go with your opinion than and then not know it all. So
1: yeah. Well, I mean, this is also it's my opinion, and and maybe the study has been done, and I haven't read it yet. I mean, there's plenty. You know, there's there's um it, there's a lot more coming out and i am excited for us to you know i i am excited to see where where we go with research and like where the information takes us because i would like to know that is something that's I an mean, interesting like cb cbd the largest um to me at least benefits i in my opinion are happening through the the serotonin receptors uh for me but i i use it for mental health um and cbd is really promiscuous it's a complicated molecule i mean it it's promiscuous like it's not necessarily a bad thing but it it binds to many things in the body it's
0: busy (laughs) Yep. (laughs) right on so let's go ahead and take that break finally uh you are listening to shaping fire and my guest today is cannabis scientist and educator miyabi shields This message is for folks who grow cannabis. I'm talking to home growers, patients, and commercial growers, too. I'm probably talking to you. When you plan out your next growing cycle, be sure to check out Humboldt CSI Seeds at HumboldtCSI.com. Caleb Inspecta and his family have lived in Humboldt County for over 100 years. For the last 40 years, three generations of his family have cultivated extraordinary Sensomia Cannabis in Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity Counties. Because of his lineage and the hard-earned experience that comes from growing up smoking and sifting large populations of cannabis plants in Northern California, the seeds you'll cop from CSI will be winning genetics based on longtime heavy hitters and updated and resifted to bring out new and exotic traits and better yields. Go ahead and ask around. Caleb, also known as Inspecta and Pirates of the Emerald Triangle, is a breeder's breeder. He reaches way back and works with significant strains, recreating them in new and interesting ways that you'll love as a toker and a grower, as well as offering you some surprises that will delight serious seed traders and cultivators. Humboldt CSI goes a further step and selfs all these chemovars so you know all the seeds will be female. These are not experimental feminized seeds. Humboldt CSI releases some of the best female seeds available anywhere, and it will show in your garden. Folks grew quite a bit of CSI Humble Gen X last year here on Vashon Island, and everyone was pleased. The patients had beautiful female plants and didn't have to cull half of their garden as males. The folks growing for the fun of getting high grew colorful flowers with exceptional bag appeal and great highs. And breeders had 7 out of 7 females in a pack, which gave them a lot of phenotypic choices. Take a moment right now and visit HumboldtCSI.com. You'll find an up-to-date menu of both feminized and regular lines along with photos and descriptions. That's HumboldtCSI.com. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert Biological Systems has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the U.S. from coast to coast. No matter where you live, Copert Biological Systems can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T.com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check out their Instagram, at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. While I love growing under the sun, there's a lot of good reasons to grow indoors. And if you're like most folks, you want a lighting source that grows high-yielding, healthy plants without using excessive amounts of electricity. BIOS Lighting creates biological lighting solutions that brings the natural brilliance of the outdoors into your grow room. BIOS lighting has the attributes that I look for in a horticultural lighting solution. I've bought those cheap lights online, and they're difficult to work with and fail in no time. In contrast, my BIOS LED light is industrial grade to last a long time. It is IP66 wet rated, so little foliar overspray won't harm it. It is easy to clean without taking it down, and of course, the most important aspect, it is built for the exact light spectrum I want for great yielding, healthy cannabis plants. And it doesn't hurt that their lighting rigs look badass, too. Many horticultural LED lighting systems are based on irrelevant performance metrics and people love to argue online about these numbers. I prefer to judge on par photon efficiency and how happy my plants are, and the BIOS lights exceed my expectations in these categories. BIOS lights have an optimized broad spectrum that maximizes photosynthesis and plant growth while also providing the ideal conditions for superior par efficacy and a comfortable visual experience. I also love their attentive and over-educated customer service folks. BIOS starts with a team of biologists before getting the electrical engineers involved. They have studied how light impacts cannabis plants and devised an overall strategy that works. I encourage you to check out their website at bioslighting.com to learn more about how this strategy can work for you. And Shaping Fire listeners can get a special deal. Use the discount code Shaping Fire, all one word, no caps, for 10% off your entire purchase. That's bioslighting.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabis scientist and educator, Miyabi Shields. So, Miyabi, we are to the part of the show that I have been the most uncomfortable about. Um, And I didn't tell you much about this in advance. So, you know, I know your company that you helped found, which, you know, is not the point of the show today, but it's called Real Isolates, right? And I know that you are a pharmaceutical chemist, and you spend a lot of time looking at cannabinoid isolates. And for people who aren't familiar, we're talking about pure molecule THC, pure molecule Molecule cbd whereas normally i'm talking on this show about you know taking the whole plant resin from directly from the plant so instead of pulling out the isolates of the plant and then mixing and matching them like a pharmaceutical company would to kind of you know build a medicine i'm more in the family of let's breed a plant that um Uh, effects that has the positive effect for the for the patient and then let's just do a whole resin extraction of that plant and then we've got a we've got a uh, you know we've got got a medicine directly from nature and so that's what we talk about a lot on the show Um, but you know you are right there on the front lines of this science so so what what is your take on this like you know, you 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 clearly understand what I'm talking about about whole plant medicine and the resin. But I also know that, from what I understand, a lot of your research is into these individual molecules. And for many of us, like you know, when CBD was really hard to find, I mean, nowadays the prices crashed. But you know, six years ago, CBD was really hard to find, and so we would we would often um, recommend to patients that they take a whole plant extract from a THC plant and then add isolate to it to kind of art artificially spike it so they could get the cbd that the studies were saying they were needed and oh my gosh i felt like i was making or participating in frankenstein medicine you know so so with with that whole kind of setup what are your thoughts in comparing whole plant medicine versus the more common use of cbd isolate thc isolate and now god help us uh you know um, delta eight isolate
1: <laughs> well actually it's funny that you mentioned that. Um our company name Real Isolates is sort of a play on words because there are there is no such thing as a real isolate. Um and we do research and doing research involves isolating these compounds and, and looking at them, but in terms of the the efficacy of whole plant extracts versus isolates i think that there are huge benefits to chemo diversity that are undervalued and, and under researched and actually our whole company which i know is now probably a misnomer at the time we thought it was funny um, real isolates um at the time we were like this makes perfect sense we'll tell everyone about how there's no real isolates
0: um, oh, so it's like a science joke that no one gets <laughs>
1: <laughs> well hopefully people will get it eventually um but actually our our entire our entire research is uh, that we do and and everything is based upon you know this theory that i've been working on that has to do with chemo diversity and the potentially essentially what you were just describing about whole plants making crude extracts with whole plants and the extremely extremely complex pharmacology that comes with crude extracts Because if you think about, um, have you, have you heard of the, the three body problem in physics?
0: No, I'm not familiar with that.
1: Okay. So basically it's just a problem that says in, in physics, in a vacuum of space, if you have two planets or two bodies, it's, it's very, very easy to derive a mathematical equation that describes those two bodies. It's very predictable and it's, it's safe. Um, So pharmaceutical chemistry is in many ways a two-body problem because you have the one synthetic molecule, or in this case, if you were looking at isolates of CBD and THC, you have the one molecule and then you have the the human body, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But in physics, there's this problem where instead of two bodies, you introduce a third body, like a third planet, and they're all rotating around each other. And all of a sudden, it becomes impossible to generate an equation to describe because it it suddenly
0: gets so complex
1: and that's with three and the cannabis plant has over 400 unique molecules in Depending on the strain depending on the grow. So depending on like the genetics and the chemovar depending on the grow conditions and how it's grown Depending on the dry and cure process and how it's dried and cured Then depending on how it's extracted whether or not it's distilled. What are the distillation parameters like fraction distillation versus short bath distillation? It is a hundred plus body problem (laughs) like (laughs) Easily for sure, but I'm at the point where like I embrace that problem because that 100 plus body problem has very specific solutions that I don't believe that isolates can can solve. Um, that's just a personal opinion of mine. I personally believe that there are huge advantages to chemo diversity, which is just a description of like the number of total molecules that are in an extract. Like, for example, um... I have huge success making topicals with crude extracts of cannabis and willow bark. And white willow bark has the precurs- has salicylic acid in it, which is the scaffold that we use to make aspirin. Mm-hmm. Um, but in addition to salicylic acid, it has a bunch of other rare, you know, rare derivatives of salicylic acid similarly to how cannabis has all the rare cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids and other fatty acids and bioactive molecules. Right. And do we, do we understand exactly how all of these things interact? Like, no, we don't understand that at all yet. We're not there yet where we could say, I will give you a synthetic mixture of all 400 of these things to cause a very specific effect. I mean, that would be the holy grail or that would be, you know, that would be the goal eventually of, of research. Um, but we're nowhere close to there. And in my opinion, does the whole plant have uncharted territory and uncharted opportunities for various specific therapeutic effects and, or increased effects, um, for like a, a lower like risk potential like yes i think that isolates not necessarily cbd isolate but okay well cbd isolate maybe i'll i'll i could talk a little bit about that right so epidiolex is the pharmaceutical um cbd Mm -hmm. formulation and the dose for epidiolex is extremely high i mean it's in the it's in like for my weight it would be like more than a gram more than once per day um Extremely, extremely high dose for it to be efficacious. And obviously, that's, you know, seizure disorders require higher doses, but. It's my personal opinion that you could potentiate CBD, meaning you make CBD more effective by giving it with other cannabinoids that act synergistically. Mm -hmm. So a synergistic interaction means more than additive. Um, And these are things that are are difficult to prove in a laboratory setting. And I know that people are working on it and that it's, it's being done. Um, but in, in the meantime, in terms, in terms of just like what my opinion is of it, I think that the whole plant extracts have a lower risk potential for negative effects and potentially in many ways, um, a higher efficacy. Although there are advantages, no, there are no doubt advantages to distilling and, and purifying. You can't, you can't argue that there, there are some advantages to that, um, I guess just in, in the personal context, I am a big fan and, and use crude extracts and flour. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, I'm very relieved because I thought I was going into <laughs> a, a debate with a scientist who loved isolates. And I'm like, oh, my God, how am I going to hold my own defending well, whole plant? And then here you are saying, oh, actually, whole plant, you know, is, you know, is 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 probably preferred, which is a huge relief to me.
1: Well, whole whole plant is really just a combination of isolates,
0: right? Right.
1: <laughs> I mean, but it's but it's but it's not. I mean, I, it's it's kind of like contrary, right? Because by name isolate means you're isolating one thing, and um, there there are absolutely advantages to to isolate. Although, in in my opinion, um, not for chronic use. Um, so like specifically we we're talking about tolerance and taking tolerance breaks. And I know I didn't, I, I didn't mention it when we were talking about it, but there's, there's a very specific type of withdrawal an acute withdrawal, um, that is coming up more and more, uh, called cannabis hyperemesis syndrome or CHS. And it's my personal opinion that that develops due to a very, very specific type of tolerance and withdrawal to just THC. Um, and it's, I don't, it's not it's nowhere near close to, we're nowhere near close to understanding exactly how all of these things work or, or whether or not this is, this is like a hundred percent the mechanism. But when you take a a whole plant extract that has, you know, a, a large number of different, of different cannabinoids. Also, you know, the perfect example of this, which is, you know, touching on my current research project is, is smoking, right? Like I, I prefer cannabis smoke to the edible experience. I know that that's true for a majority of people. Actually, I recently Recently, pulled I pulled all my, my social media and got over thirteen thousand responses, and it's pretty much an overwhelming majority of people prefer smoking. And there's there's no doubt advantages to edibles, and it, that's in a comparable way to that. There's no doubt advantages to pharmaceutical formulations, but many edibles these days are made with distillate. Yeah, um, they're made with very very concentrate, and distillate, even though it's not isolate. Is practically isolate. I mean, it, de- right, exactly. it depends. It depends on you know the the dispensary, the pro- or the producer and the lab that's making it. But there, it's often. I think it's common practice for people to distill above eighty five percent, right? Yeah. Um, which basically means that you're taking out everything else and you're hyper selecting for the cannabinoids. And you know, I'm, I'm kind of going in a circle here, but I prefer smoking, and I always had, and and majority of people prefer smoking. And one of the reasons why I believe that is because smoking produces the most diverse formulation out of anything that you possibly could intake Um, in terms of like a crude edible extraction like butter or RSO versus a distillate extraction versus smoking. The distillate edibles are on one side. And uh, so like isolates and distillate are on one side of like the purest form of, of just THC or just CBD. Um, And then crude extracts or whole plant extracts are in the middle and then smoking is on the opposite side in terms of just the, the total number of the the complexity of the formulation of cannabinoids that you're taking in. And that, you know, this has been my big passion and something that I'm passionate about researching for like for a while now is why is that and looking into it. And, you know, it would take a supercomputer, and a, a lot of simulation to even be able to to begin to predict the co- like the complex interactions like at the receptor level um, that occur with with so many different mixtures, right? Like, yeah, yeah. If especially especially when you have the fact that you have like flavonoids and terpenes and other bioactive molecules. Like, there's a lot of factors to take into consideration. And you blew um, me
0: away the other day when you when you taught that um, that. Even regardless of what your your analytics say about your flower, when you burn the flower, you are actually bringing additional cannabinoids into existence so that a burnt combusted flower like in a joint or something is even more pharmacologically complex than what you think is in it when you look at your lab tests.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's, we always talk about the negatives and the downsides to smoking and I, there's, It you can't argue that there are some negatives to smoking as a method, but there are some benefits as well. And there are some very, very unique, um, you know, things that, that occur. And yeah, in terms of like what I was mentioning about, like dependent, regardless of what the flower looks like, I mean, a, a lot of THC will get converted because it is a, it's a reactive molecule, and you heat it to a very, very high temperature. And then the flour has other reactive molecules as well. The terpenes are all extremely volatile. Uh, and then there's just the fact like when we talk about combustion, you know, true combustion means you're going all the way down to CO2 and water. And we do not fully combust the the flour i mean when you're at the very very end of your bowl and it's all white and ashy like yeah okay that's you know that that's completely combusted um but when we're typically smoking you know like when you're not running totally dry like you're not fully combusting Mm -hmm. um you're heating and extracting at the same time um and you're also transforming and yeah it's I think chemo diversity has a huge impact on the overall effect. I mean, I, I can tell you right now that like no one will be able to convince me that smoking doesn't give me a different formulation because it feels so different. It sure does. Like, and there's so many specific effects um, in in terms of strain specificity that I'm, and perhaps I just don't have experience with enough experience with strain specific edibles because, you know, so many edibles are made with distillate, um, which distills them back down. So
0: it simplifies yeah. them and, and I just know that the high is not nearly as good smoking you know distillate or actually any version of distillate let's 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 finish with this question because I, I don't want to keep you uh, longer than we agreed to um, The um, when we talk about whole plant medicine with many scientists at conventions I, people tell me ah whole plant medicine is messy we can't control it we don't know what's in it whereas you're talking about the benefits of chemical uh diversity and and you know i come from a place of efficacy that just works so much better when you're talking scientist to scientist what do you tell that other scientist who says that you know cannabis resin is messy and uncontrolled and so we should go in a different direction
1: i tell them that real life is messy
0: Oh, that's and beautiful. <laughs> real, real,
1: real life is pretty uncontrolled, and that I absolutely love the scientific rigor of getting in the lab and minimizing variables. But that's just not life, and I I know that this is something that many scientists do and will in future disagree with me over. And I was very hesitant about talking about it for for a long time for that reason um because i i do agree that there is it, it is messy i mean i i agree that the, it's unknown right um and it's it's complicated but then i also can't help but think about reality <laughs> and um you know reality is messy and uncontrollable and complicated and t- to your point you know just to close like the most important thing to me is helping other people improve their quality of life and efficacy is where it's at. And let me just like this is just like a thought, to, like, a little like thing, a, a seed of thought. But, you know, most drugs that go to clinical trial from pharma, like pharmaceutical, synthetic drugs going to clinical trial. Um, first of all, it's extremely expensive to get them to a clinical trial, but by the time they get there, the most common reason why they fail is not because they're toxic, but it's because they are not efficacious. The most common reason why a drug will fail a clinical trial is because it just simply doesn't work. So I guess my question to another scientist who would say that it's messy, my question would be like, so it's messy, but it works.
0: And in <laughs> and the the, end, like, what the it, reduction of suffering is the goal.
1: Is in is it the goal? Right? Exactly. Is that the goal? And if that is the goal, which I I think everyone agrees that that's the goal, um, then why shouldn't we value something that's messy and try to work with it? Because I I totally agree and understand it is messy. There there's tons of questions. I mean, even with you know my project is looking at cannabis smoke. I opened Pandora's box <laughs> and there's a lot of questions and a lot of things to be figured out and a lot of unknown. And I think the unknown makes people scared, but you know, there's a thing about science where scientists are like searching around in the dark underneath one street lamp. So like the universe is this dark mysterious thing and science just has this like the little street lamps of technology. Like if you imagine every new technological advance is a new little street lamp that you can kind of like turn on and, and look under. And all of us are down on our hands and knees as scientists with a magnifying glass <laughs> looking under the street lamp. And then everyone else is like, well, what if the answer is in the dark? <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? And we, we don't have the answer to that. So, you know, that would be, <laughs> I guess this is like, and I would love to have a discussions with, I, and I'm sure I will have many discussions with other scientists on this, but, um, You know, I've I've been speaking with a lot of people on chemo diversity and most people that I talk to, especially people who have used and benefited from plant medicine, most of those people who have that and hear what I'm saying about chemo diversity are just kind of like, right, that just, it just makes sense.
0: Uh. That's fantastic, Miyabi. It has been such a joy to interview you. Um, your your depth of, and detail of knowledge is like so liberating. And 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 you know, it, it says in the intro to the show that we we do all of this with good cheer, and you're you're such a cheerful and, and enjoyable person to chat with. I really appreciate it. And I got to tell you, like, I had so many. I've got a whole you know half show of questions that we didn't get to. You would you be so kind to come back again soon so that we can continue our conversation?
1: Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was really enjoyable. And I, I love talking about this stuff. It's actually my, it's it's like extremely special and
0: narrow interest of mine. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. If you are interested in following um, Miyabi Shields on social media, there is a lot of fun there. So I'm going to start out by giving you um, their Instagram, which is Miyabi, which is M-I-Y-A-B-E-P-H-D, um, because uh, the TikTok channel keeps on getting uh, deleted and, and, and uh, there isn't a website yet. So, so just go to Miyabi PhD on Instagram, and from there, you will be able to start picking up on the rest of their teaching. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you'll also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram, for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Lose on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.